Welcome back to The Canon, the show where I, Devin Faraci of Badass Digest, and Amy Nicholson of LA Weekly uh, get together to argue about whether movies belong in the canon, the list of films, the greatest films that deserve to live for all time. This week we're going to do something a little bit different. In the past we have uh, just uh, brought out a movie and said uh, you vote yes or no on whether or not you believe this movie is uh, part of the canon. This and that, week we're getting a little bit more brutal. We're getting a little bit we're, we're, we're going a little bit different. We've, we're decided to change things up and this is something I think we're going to do in future episodes as well. Uh, this is going to be a Thunderdome death match, a versus uh, uh, episode uh, where we're going to go through the Star Wars saga, the six films thus released, thus far released, and we're going to decide uh, which of them belongs in the canon. We Only one can make it into the canon. The, the canon cannot hold six Star Wars films. Uh, it can't even hold two Star Wars films. Just one Star Wars film will be in the canon, and today we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to decide which one ends up in the canon, lives forever, uh, and you're going to vote. As always, voting happens on our website at wolfpop.com. Go to the forums and then find the canon forum. There will be an official voting thread where you're going to be able to at the end of this episode cast your vote for star wars or the empire strikes back and i kind of gave it away right there because you did because i know that there's some kid out there who's like oh i cannot wait to vote for phantom menace and make the argument that has not been heard yeah and this is not going to be happening on this episode so here's the thing i mean there's six star wars movies uh uh, four of them directed by uh george lucas to date there's a episode seven coming next year which perhaps who knows maybe we'll be doing an episode then uh for uh does star wars the force awakens make it into the canon Um, i will not be betting much money on the likelihood of that but maybe i'll give it five bucks uh, on us recording an episode or making into the canon uh on us recording an episode about it oh i you know what considering the number of downloads that i'm guaranteed we would get if we did an episode (laughs) about the force awakens i i will say i will take your five dollar bet and then i will what you will do for five dollars which is actually a lot (laughs) you're pretty cheap Devin. Um, so you know what? So there's these six Star Wars films, uh, and but the reality is, and we're just going to come right out and say it right up front that uh, the prequels are garbage. Uh, there's not even a chance these movies are making it into the canon. Uh, they're not even close. Uh, God bless the young people who grow up with these films. There are people who love these movies. Yeah, well, uh, it's true. Just like there are people of our generation who love Goonies. Uh, oh. That's going to be – we should do that we one. We should do Goonies. We're going to need a guest for that one because I don't think you are – I think both you and I are – We both hate the Goonies? Yeah, I hate oh, the Goonies. Oh, Devin, I love you so much right now. <laughs> no, but you're right. You're right. I, I I have to actually admit something that I'm a little scared to admit, which is I've never seen any of the three pre- prequels. I just couldn't. It, I just couldn't bring myself to it. I found myself more fascinated by the stories about the three prequels, especially the stories of all the people who had been lining up outside Grauman's Chinese for weeks to see the film – that I love. I was totally into that. The actual movie, I just couldn't even be bothered to, to see. My friend Sarah is one of those people. Um, she she lined up in front of the, the Chinese for weeks, uh, 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 made it a big part of her life, went to go see The Phantom Menace. You know, I remember going to see The Phantom Menace for the first time, and I had bought three tickets for the movie, like three different showings, because clearly it was the first new Star Wars in, you know, however many years. And I was so excited. And I went, and I went, it was in the Poughkeepsie Galleria in upstate New York. I Wait, went to go see Did you see buy it. them all for the same day? Like you're going to do a noon, a three, and a six? It was a midnight. It was like a noon, and it was like, or it was like, a, maybe it was like a 10 o'clock. They might have had like an early screening and then I but it was yeah oh, so you're I, just planning on sleeping in the orange Julius well, I was pretty much just going to be hanging out for the entire day and so what happened was we went you in really and cool and yeah I was a pretty cool dude uh, in 1999 and uh, you know I went in to go see Phantom Menace and I remember sitting through it and uh, this strange sense of deflation and then afterwards we all went out to get dinner my friends and I and we talked about it and the discussion was such a fascinating 
coming to terms. It was like, you know, the five stages of grief. It was denial. You know, and that's where we were totally like, well, yeah, Jar Jar was pretty terrible, but this was pretty cool, right? And that was great. And, uh, oh, the duel of the fates. Oh, Darth Maul's really good. But then eventually it came around that it was terrible. And the thing is, you've never seen these movies. The craziest thing about The Phantom Menace, it's the best one. That's the craziest part. They get even worse. They get worse because George Lucas, uh, the response to Phantom Menace was such that by Attack of the Clones, he kind of leaned heavily into the criticisms and tried to give people what they wanted and it was awful. Whoa. I and will admit I lied. I lied a little bit. Uh, I had an ex-boyfriend who forced me to see 15 minutes of maybe the third one. Uh, 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 Revenge of the Sith. Possibly. All I really remember is seeing uh, Natalie Portman standing really stiff in a room and saying things that didn't sound like they came from a human being at all. That's literally every single one of those prequels. There could have been any of them. There could have been any of them. Uh, So the third one then is the one that we all were really hopeful about because this is the third one was the one where uh, Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. So like, well, this is what we've been waiting for. And they, Lucas even blew that and uh, there's no emotional investment in any of it. And then Natalie Portman dies giving birth of sadness, um, which is just like one of those, ugh. Moments and you know you have this dream that you're going to see young Obi Wan Kenobi and young Darth Vader fighting to the death on a lava planet. Uh, as a nerd growing up, that th- that lava planet was part of the the mythology that we had uh, all, all been so excited about. To to see it realized as a a platform hopping video game was just depressing. So the prequels are out. The prequels do not make the competition at all, which leads us with the original trilogy. So only one of these three movies is going to make it, and I think. You and I can both safely say that Return of the Jedi does not make the competition. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I loved the Ewoks when I was four. I'm not going to lie. My parents bought me a big Darth Vader head, and I think I had like six or seven Ewoks in there. And, and tellingly, um, when I was in college, I lived with this guy who made GHB in our house. This is my sophomore year. And he had all these druggy friends because I lived in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is full of like really bored kids who do drugs all the time. So he had this druggy friend who worked at Lon John Silver's. And his druggy friend went and stole all of my really good action figures from my Darth Vader head, all my original, like my original Luke Skywalker, my C-3PO, my everything. But he left all the Ewoks. And so I think because of that alone, we can just say that, you know. That's fair. Revenge of the Jedi's out. That's fair. Uh, Return of the Return Jedi. Return of the Jedi, yeah. Come on. How are you even going to have this discussion if you don't even know the name? <laughs> the movie was originally called Revenge of the Jedi. And it they was. even po- made a poster of it. But, and it's uh, even what screwed up the name Wrath of Khan. It was going to be Revenge of Khan. And they had to change it to Wrath of Khan because they thought it was going to be Revenge of the Jedi. I think Wrath of Khan ends up being a better title anyway. Is. What um, about Wrath uh, of the Jedi? Wrath of the Jedi. Uh, but the Jedis don't have wrath. Jedi, Jedi don't. That's, that was a problem with titles that Lucas decided that Jedis don't get revenge. So you couldn't call the movie Revenge of the Jedi, uh, which makes Revenge of the Sith just a big piece of bullshit fan service. That title is just a bullshit piece of fan service. Um, so then that leaves us just with Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back because I think we can agree that Return of the Jedi, for all of its good or bad, if we're going to put one Star Wars movie into the canon, it's probably not going to be that one. No, although at Comic-Con you could be mistaken for being confused given all the slave layers. Uh, yes, this is part of the strong woman movement in fandom. Uh, women dressed in metal slave bikinis. Um, so, Listen, man, I'm every woman. <laughs> man, there was like a watershed moment when um, uh, Jennifer Aniston dressed as the slave Leia on Friends. There was a moment like where – Whoa, that seems like the universe folding in on itself. Star Wars had become like after Jedi and there had been no new Star Wars for 20 years, Star Wars had become a really niche nerd thing again. Because um, it was the biggest movie of all time, so it was never niche until it went away for a while. And then when Friends had uh, had Rachel dress as Slave Leia, that was a moment. Where it was like, oh, this this shit is back in the popular culture in a pretty big way. Were you um, excited about that, or were you like, well, Jennifer Aniston hey, looked really good in a, in a metal bikini? So Did she still I, have her friend's haircut? I, 
trying to remember. I don't. I think she had the Monica Lewinsky. I, I don't think she had the the Rachel. I think she had. Uh, I think she had the Slave Leia haircut and everything. Mm-hmm. She did it for Ross. It was like Ross's fantasy. So. Wow, I don't think I've ever loved a man that much. <laughs> um, so uh, Return of the Jedi is out. It brings us down to Star Wars versus Empire Strikes Back. And I want to do a small note on nomenclature right now. Uh, I refuse to call Star Wars a new hope. I, I refuse. Uh, I'm old enough that I was maybe four years old, but I was old enough to see Star Wars in the theater when it was just called Star Wars before they put episode four on it, before it was called The New Hope. I think just calling it Star Wars is plenty fine. I'm fine with that because I'm lazy, also because I do not really care. <laughs> so if this means a lot to you, Devin, you know what? I can make that concession. So I think this is a good opportunity for us to um, talk about something that maybe the listeners have been wondering about. Uh, this is our fifth episode, and we have uh, – and the show has been going really great. And thanks, everybody, home for listening. And also for, thanks, everybody, for voting. The, the response, the the interactivity has been really terrific, and that's maybe the most exciting part about it for me. But like, my favorite part is everybody who tweets at me and tells me that I'm right. <laughs> so thank you guys. Well, that's nice both times that it happened for you. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks, mom. I really do appreciate it. I you did about- such a good job, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so last week we talked about Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire, the huge middlebrow hit of the mid '90s starring Tom Cruise. I put up to a vote that it definitely belongs in the canon. This is a film that was a huge critical success. It was a huge commercial success, and it launched catchphrases into the atmosphere that we're still hearing pinging around on satellites. And you guys voted nay. So you do not complete me, and you've broken my heart. I want to talk about what it means to put something in the canon, because this is a question people have been asking, and this is the episode that I think is going to test it, uh, at least for you in some ways, which is that can a movie be in the canon? Can we vote yes for a movie in the canon even if we don't particularly like it? Yeah, the idea that a movie – has an importance that must be recognized even if we don't enjoy it. It's it's a conversation I think if we ever do a show on maybe Song of the South or, you know, um I love Song of the South. Any DW for Griffith all the films. wrong reasons. I, I would defy I would love to know what some of those well, are. I've, right already now, def- I'm to I, I've already defended racism in the Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, Doom episodes, so let's bring it on bring on Birth of a Nation. <laughs> let's see what I can do. Yeah, that's the thing. I like I like that conversation. I think it's one worth having because I you know, the thing is, when you're a movie critic and you live in the world of Star Wars movies and you live in the world of new Star Wars movies, there's, there's sort of a slight shame I feel like I have to carry around, which is that in the tiniest core of me, I'm not that much of a Star Wars person. And I part of me always thinks it's just a little bit silly. And I, I get nervous even saying that. It's weird that I get nervous even saying that, like how I, how I feel ashamed to admit that I sort of, at the end of the day, think it's just a really cute kids movie. Right. Am I am I right? Am I going to get pill- – I don't feel like I'm really going to get pillarized for that, but I, I just don't know why I'm nervous to even say that out loud. I think a lot of Star Wars people are the same people who um, would have burned you at the stake for saying that the earth revolves around the sun. I think this is sort of a very similar uh, thing here. There are people who just don't like having their preconceived notions um, uh, addressed in this way. So I, I, I think that you should be afraid. She's <laughs> very, be very afraid. afraid. She's very yeah. afraid. I mean, it's not that I think it's a bad movie. I just don't love the Star Wars movies. I don't have this like visceral, visceral love for them. But I think that, you know, the idea that a Star Wars movie does belong in the canon, be it Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, I can really accept that because I do think that these films shaped a lot of what we think as popular filmmaking. I do think they showed us that, you know, sci fi movies, for better or worse, could be great, huge moneymakers. I think for better or worse, they showed the power of the young adult audience and the teenage audience and the kid audience in terms of merchandising. Like they did good and bad things that, you know, good or bad being almost irrelevant here. They're important things. 
So you're going to take the snobby position that uh, these are bad things, though, because you say you because you're really hedging your bets over here. You're sort of like, well, good or bad, good or bad. But you, I feel like you're. <laughs> I'm trying you're not to get burned merch. alive. Okay, no, um, I think that they are both good and bad things. I think that the emphasis on merchandising in films is a horrible, horrible thing. There was an article in the New York Times today about how much money Frozen has made, you know, just in the merchandising. And I wish that we didn't greenlight movies based on that. I think the fact that because big studios. Do greenlight movies based on will this or not sell ancillary products is a huge problem nowadays because that's why we don't get, you know, more movies like Mike Nichols movies greenlit because who's going to buy like a doll of the graduate? See, uh, this is an argument that I really hate and I'm, I'm glad we're going to have this right now. Uh, this is the perfect uh, battlefield upon which to have this argument because it, Star Wars is the movie that started this. I hate this argument because what it, well, all that it does is say uh, this is how movies were 40 or 50 years ago and this is how movies should always be. And it drives me crazy because no, the studios are not necessarily making The Graduate, but it's not a world where The Graduate can't happen. There's a world where lower budget movies that are sort of uh, domestic or, or dramatic still happen. You and I both go to film festivals and see a ton of movies like this. Yeah, but these movies tend to be more independently financed and at best so? picked up by a studio and distributed. They don't get so? the weight behind them. They don't get the muscle behind them. They don't get the big names. They don't get the marketing. They're missing out on everything. But they're not because if people don't want to see these movies, I, this is the part that I don't understand. Like if these if people wanted to see these movies and I want to see these movies, I will seek yeah. them out and I will go see these movies. Uh, you know, I paid my 15 bucks. That's a matinee price, 15 bucks to go see Beyond the Lights. Uh, you know, which is a, essentially an adult movie. It's not like crazy adult, but it's not a merch movie. It's not like a tie-in. It's not whatever. It's a story about human beings having romance and love. I paid my money to go see that, um, and 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 people will do that. But they will do that. But I think the problem is a lot of people didn't know Beyond the Lights existed. And if you're going to bring that up, and I'm glad you are because I really hope people go see the Beyond Beyond the Lights. It's the pop star drama uh, starring Gugu Mbatha-Raw, who I think is just phenomenal, and it. it's kind of Rihanna inspired. She's got this purple hair and wears these like. Slave metal chain, like lay of bikinis through it. Um, a lot of people didn't see it because they didn't know it existed. And part of why you knew it existed is because you got participated into like a Twitter conversation we were having about Beyond the Lights the day before. And it's like, it's a the studios aren't promoting these films. It's up to critics and people to try to do it word of mouth. And but that's the new world. This, that's the whole thing. The world has changed. And so the issue isn't that, uh, you know, this is how it should be. This is how it is. The world is different. There's, there are more movies being made now than there ever were. I mean, this is uh, 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 the New York Times uh, ran a thing about how annoying it is. There's so many movies coming out. It is. It is. Well, it's annoying because they, they it's like a gardener going out and sowing like a whole field full of seeds of blades of grass. You know, but he can't actually water any of them except one. And the only one he waters is Star Wars, Star Wars Episode Seven. You know, and so these things are they're, – they're technically alive, but they're getting st strangled to death before they're even born. But I, see, I disagree. I mean in the next couple of weeks, Inherent Vice is going to come out. Nightcrawler just came out. I mean like I, I look around and I see movies that are, that are really good movies. Nightcrawler could have come out in 1973, 100 percent. It is of that era of New Hollywood, 100 percent. Inherent Vice is a movie that is going to be getting a fairly wide release that has major stars in it, that has a big studio behind it, that is a two-and-a-half-hour pretty weird, uh, pretty off-kilter movie that is doing its own thing. Uh, these Movies exist. They still happen. They do, but you're picking on like those are sort of rare exceptions. And I think a movie like Nightcrawler would have done huge business in 1974. I think if Nightcrawler came out in 1994, it would have been a cultural event. It would have been like falling down where everybody knew about this movie. People wrote think pieces about it in Time magazine. It was a big deal. And now it's just a little movie that I feel like critics like you and me have to like shout at to get people to pay attention to. But I think as, as it ever was, I mean the, the reality is that uh, – 
the, the, the good movies never do that well. We look back in time and we look back at movies that are really great and they just they, – they, you'd be surprised that – you know, this is, I think a really good example I – mean, maybe I'm going to get murdered on this. But uh, a good example is It's a Wonderful Life, which is a movie that is now considered a classic, that is a perennial. It was a bomb. You know, uh, and, and I think it's a great movie, by the way, as, as well. I think it was a bomb because it had a darkness to it that the audience at the time didn't want to deal with. Uh, but it was a bomb at the time. And, and I think this is historical. We look back at the years where the Oscars happened and the great movies never win the Oscars. They never get the recognition. This is just this is just the cycle of history. We are always trying to get the really good movies to pay attention – get paid attention to. But we live in a world now of VOD. We live in a world of niche audiences where these other kinds of movies can go to people where they want to. So Star Wars did create a different kind of a spectacle-level cinema – which is exciting on its own, which, which, uh, but I don't think that it's. If anything, it's 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 fractured the playing field in such a way. There's so many different exciting options. Yeah, but you can have all the different options in the sun, and if nobody sees them, and who cares? I mean, to me, the biggest crisis going on in Hollywood today is the death of the thirty million dollar movie. That's where everything keeps boiling down to: is why don't we make those movies like Rain Man anymore? You know, because to prove your point wrong, you know, a movie like Rain Man comes out in 1986. And it becomes the biggest box office draw of the year. That doesn't happen anymore. And the studio's trusted in putting money into that movie, even though you weren't going to buy like a Dustin Hoffman doll. But these things still exist. I mean, like they don't mu- exist. How When's much the last good smart drama that well, was good the- is different. That's the thing. Is that just because they're not making them well doesn't mean they're not making them. And they were when not making the them well in the sixties. When is the last time a drama was number one, number one at the box office? When is the last time a movie made for adults that wasn't made to sell toys was the number one film of the year? Uh, I'm gonna. You, oh, and, and Devin is on his smartphone. I'm right on my now phone right now. I'm going to box office fucking mojo. Because you can't mojo. even think about no, it. No, I'm going to actually find it because I know that uh, that yeah, it's okay. happened. We are so uh, here far we go. away. Interstellar from... is the number one movie right now. Yeah, I'm talking about of the year. Any oh, movie can be year? number one for a weekend. Oh well, who cares of the year? This is like complaining that. Uh, no, because I think it's important that Rain like, Man was the number one movie of its year is important because that does not happen today. Well, because they just it was a it was just a different system. This is like complaining that people eat a lot of McDonald's now and then thus therefore it's killing food. No, I mean there's always going to be the big dumb shit. There will be some years where there's going to be a movie and this will happen again eventually where the cycle will come back around and there'll be a really big adult movie that'll be like a little bit spectacle based because we are living in an era where. Where uh, the, the the availability of VOD and home video is making it so that the movies that do well in theaters have to be big movies, but that's nothing to do with Star Wars. It has to do with technology. I think it partially does have to do with Star Wars because I think this is where studios put their money and their marketing power. And I like the fact that you actually couldn't name a film, so that's good. I'm well, going to try this as, as a point for me. I didn't and even. And I'm going to take you up on your bet that someday there will be a movie made for adults that is number one at the box office um, for the year. And I'm going to bet that you are so wrong that I'm going to double my earlier bet. I'm going to put $10 on this. I'm going to bet you $10. And do you know what you could but buy? How long were you going to have to have $10? this bet less? How long do I have to know you for? Yeah, you, the rest of your life, Jesus darling. Christ. I mean, if you keep eating McDonald's, maybe you won't live super, super long. So there's that. This is uh, the last movie that was a number one for the year. I mean, define tie-ins or toys or whatever. <laughs> Okay, Bill Clinton. Can we get back to Star Wars? I mean, Rain now? Man was the last one. It was okay. Thank you. But Rain Man came out ten years after Star Wars, so you can't even exactly ten years after Star Wars, so you can't even blame Star Wars for it, that. It, things don't die immediately; they choked it out. No, it's because of the change of technology. The thing is that if 
going to the theaters is 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 a big event now. It, it isn't like it was ten years ago, thirty years ago, or fifty years ago, where you go to the theater and you pay three bucks and you get two movies and a cartoon and a newsreel. Uh, the world that my grandfather lived in, you know, where people went to go see everything. Uh, it, it, it it's a world where you get a lot of stuff at home. So the stuff that is going to pop at the theater is going to be the stuff that you only have to experience at the theater. This is why the resurgence of IMAX and seventy millimeter because it's creating a theatrical experience that you cannot replicate at home. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, if you're talking about the theatrical experiences that you can't replicate at home, you can make the argument about comedies. You need that big theater full of people for a comedy to really pop. That's an interesting argument because comedies don't tend to do that well anymore, but they don't make good comedies anymore. So that's the thing that I will actually agree with. Come on, tell me about it, Henny Young. I can't blame Star Wars for that, though. (laughs) That's true. This movie is not funny. So Star Wars, whether or not you like it, and Amy hates Star Wars. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't say that. uh, We can all agree it's a really important moment in in the history of cinema. Um, You know, again, I I think that I have been in your position. I have been in the, oh, well, Lucas and Spielberg killed New Hollywood uh, position. Uh, I just – over the years, I've come around to not being able to believe that because I think that a lot of the New Hollywood guys ended up uh, you know, uh, <coughs> buying their own press and ended up making movies that just weren't either that great or just didn't really necessarily work. Um, and uh, you know, William, uh, William Friedkin uh, blames uh, Star Wars for killing Sorcerer. Uh, but I have to say that I blame uh, I have to blame making a truck movie and calling it Sorcerer uh, for for killing Sorcerer. I love Sorcerer, but like you know, it, it certainly didn't help that it came out after Star Wars. But also, it's a movie. He just made a movie called The Exorcist about an exorcist, and then he makes a movie called The Sorcerer about a truck. So I was a little bit bummed that there so wasn't who, any magic in it. Who possibly knows that? Before we get to the actual in depth discussion of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, I want to take a quick break. Are you done trying to make jokes? I'm sorry. I know girls aren't supposed to be funny. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now that now that we oh, I'm pouring my water. Let's get into the let's get into the real nitty gritty here. Star Wars uh, versus Empire Strikes Back. I think it's really interesting because if we had this exact same conversation like I don't know five years ago, I would have a totally different opinion. Uh, I, a lot has changed in my life. A lot of the ways I look at movies have changed. And in the last year, I've had a really cool opportunity to see both Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back on 35-millimeter film in their original untouched versions, the non-special edition versions. What a, an experience that is. Uh, anybody listening out there, um, it's impossible for you to do so because these movies no longer legally are able to be shown. And they, I went to illegal screenings of both these movies. You did? I Can, did. Do you feel safe saying that on air? I'm a little worried. Uh, Is it safe for me to say that I rewatched both of them this week with uh, my own pirated versions of the original versions so I didn't have to watch all the synthetic stuff? How did you find those? Uh, I'm dating a nerd. That'll go a long way. Um, I think it's a big difference. I think that – in fact, I also want to maybe lay one more ground rule. We're talking about the non-special edition versions Mm. of these movies. We are not talking about Han shooting second. No. We are not talking about uh, Han running into Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars. We're talking about the original, unmolested, perfect versions of these movies. Um, Five or six years ago, I think we would have had this discussion and I would have come down on the side of Empire Strikes Back. No questions, not at all. Obviously, it's the best one. Uh, And I've totally changed my mind on this. Yeah, me too, honestly, because when we first started about ta- doing this episode, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll obviously take Empire Strikes Back because it's supposed to be like the quote-unquote more sophisticated one, the one with more developed characters, the one with a darker arc. And then I rewatched both of them, and, dude, I'm so Team Star Wars. So are we just establishing this right now? Are we agreeing? I think we're both Team Star Wars. I want to hear – this will be really good for the comments and for Twitter. I want to hear why you think Empire Strikes Back sucks dick. Yeah, okay, yeah, Um 
First, I think Empire Strikes Back just doesn't give its characters nearly as much to do as the first Star Wars film. You know, when you really look at what happens in the film, it's pretty thin. In the first movie, you have for Luke, for example, he is bored on his home planet. He learns of Obi-Wan and uh, that Princess Leia exists. He defies his uncle uh, by going out to go hunt for Obi-Wan. He is captured by sand people. He learns about his father and how his father really died. His whole family is killed. He decides to leave his home planet for the first time. He meets a girl that he thinks he could fall in love with. He sees his mentor killed. And then he, like, goes and escapes the Death Star. And he joins the Rebel Alliance. And he attacks the Death Star. And then at the end, he gets a medal. Like, that's a lot that happens to him in there. But really, what all that happens to him in Empire is, like, there's this huge opening where he just goes and looks at a, for a probe and then gets captured by the Yeti. Well, okay, the, the Wampa, sorry. And, that, and all of that's kind of extraneous. None of that really has anything to do with the plot. And then his planet's attacked by the Empire, the Imperial fleet, and he, like, fly, flies to Dagobah, and he gets trained by Yoda, and then he just goes to try to save Han and Leia, and he sword flights Vader. And that's kind of it. Like, he has a big emotional moment at the end. Wow, but, I feel like all of a sudden, I mean, you're actually making me defend Empire. I mean, I like I Empire, but now I have to really defend it because I think that you're misunderstanding. Uh, oh, I hate. I get a lot of feedback that I keep saying that you're misunderstanding. Things that people hate that, <laughs> uh, but you don't understand anything. It's tough. That's not true. You just don't understand a goddamn thing. Uh, it, because the thing is that Luke's uh, arc in Star Wars is a very physical adventure arc. Uh, he. Um, takes the, the traditional hero's journey, which has been – that's actually I think the worst thing that Star Wars has done is that, Luke, is that George Lucas told everybody to read The Hero with a Thousand Fucking Faces and every goddamn movie has to have a tedious hero's journey uh, with refusal of the call and all this other crap. Um, but uh, Luke's journey in Star Wars is much more physical. I mean literally uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but he's a guy who uh, begins – uh, willing to go and have adventures and ends up having adventures. Empire Strikes but he, Back. But he denies. I mean, he he struggles against it. The little tiniest bit. It, that's part of the refusal of the call because Lucas is fitting it all into uh, the the the, the Campbellian uh, uh, hero's journey, which again I hate um, and I find uh, boring. Uh, but. Uh, but it's it's a very physical journey because yeah. Luke, Luke Luke is an adventurer at heart at the beginning, and he fulfills that destiny by the end of the movie. Empire is really an interesting arc for him because it's the exact opposite arc. Luke does nothing but fuck up the whole movie. He makes every decision he makes is the wrong decision, and uh, that's how he ends up getting captured by a wampa. That's how he ends up uh, getting uh, his hand cut off because the 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 key crux of of Empire, what's really interesting, is that Luke's journey is supposed to be a spiritual one, but he's resisting it because much like you, he's more interested in the physical here, uh, action journey. Uh, but he comes to a planet where he has to learn to uh, deal with himself and he he he, he, he chafes against it. And, and he actually leaves the planet having not really learned that much. Right, which is, which is why he screws everything up. Yeah, but I don't find that to be quite as compelling. I get why on paper it's compelling. But I mean, Luke, even in this film, does more than everybody else. What I don't understand about Empire really watching it closely is it all the timeline of what's going on? Because it feels like Luke is on this planet with Yoda for a really long time. What on earth are Han and Leia doing? They're just hanging out in this plane in the asteroid? Like, it feels so static. They do, well, they do almost nothing yes, in this they're film. In, they're in this plane. Uh, <laughs> they're just, like, hanging out. The plane's not even flying for most of it. It's a, it's a spaceship. Oh, is it? okay. I'm sorry. It's can I call it a space plane? Uh, no, the X-wing fighter is actually more of a space plane. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the Millennium Falcon's a, a, fr a freighter. 
uh, used for uh, uh, bringing goods uh, around. So I don't think okay. the plane at all. Uh, so really they're in works. a space freighter. Spe- well, yeah, okay, I'll get that freighter. right. I'm sorry. Sure, I'm sure they're in a, a space freighter doing nothing. Well, okay, this is where I'm going to really nerd out for a second uh, because the, here's the things that um, the actual answer for uh, all this timeline stuff is it doesn't matter. Uh, that's the actual answer. But uh, if that, we, that, the answer can't be that it doesn't. Matter. It doesn't matter because it's about the experience of the moment from scene to scene. It's not about the larger picture of how long it takes to travel from place to place. No, but I but think it, it's a waste. It's a wasted opportunity for anything to happen with Han and Leia during this entire thing. A lot's happening with Han and Leia. They're having an entire relationship. Yeah, but it's pretty annoying. I don't think I like their relationship at all in this film because it's supposed to have like this witty 1930s kind of screwball banter. But I think it really screws all of that stuff up. You know, I, I think that they just come across annoying, especially Leia, because what passes for banter in George Lucas's world is just like them fighting all the time. It's not actually like flirtation. It's just squabbling. <laughs> and like so you get these really inane moments where, you know, he's where Han is trying to fly the plane and they, he discovers that like uh, his warp, his lightning warp speed isn't working. And she's just like, oh, great. Your warp speed's not working. Like, And what? It just makes her look like a drone who's not even on board with their mission. It makes her look like she doesn't care. She's like the opposite of a proactive team player. And that's what he thinks is like witty flirting. It, I don't understand. It's like so playground and it makes her look bad. Uh, gosh, I don't know. I feel like uh, I just don't agree with that at all. I think that they're they're back and forth. Rewatch. So when I rewatched Empire on the big screen, I was really taken by um, how much as an adult watching it. I try to put it myself in the perspective as myself today. If I watched this movie for the first time, and I was really taken by how much of it didn't make any fucking sense, and um, they just run around and do things and you know use names that don't make any sense, and I grew up with these things, so it makes sense to me. Wait, wait are you saying that that's a positive? Well, uh, half and half. So, but anyway, that was interesting. But the the stuff that really worked for me in Empire um, now as a grown up is uh, the Han and Leia stuff. I think that it is witty and fun, and it's got a biting energy that I really enjoy. And also the stuff that I hated as a kid, which is Luke being whiny on Dagobah, I like now because I think it's such a it's such a, a an undermining of the usual hero's journey. And it's a, a, a very big statement against standard heroics. So I disagree with you tremendously on, on, on the, the Han and Leia stuff. I think it really works. And I think that it, it works in such a way that when um, she says, I love you, and he says, I know, it's the ultimate payoff to this banter uh, that we know all along has been building to this. I mean, see, that's a great line. But I think in getting there, it just makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, if we have Han, this kind of like devil-may-care guy who doesn't care about anything, the film starts with him – leaving the Rebel Alliance after three years because a girl won't kiss him? I mean, that just makes him seem kind of lame and pathetic. And what he's, he's going because the bounty hunters have begun to catch up with him. Yeah, but he's also – he has that like kind of pouty fight with her in a hallway about how she won't make out with him. Well, it's and both. I just, it's both because they've been running around in space for three years between these movies and he knows that she loves him and he loves her and she's not willing to act on it. Meanwhile, he has these bounty hunters on his trail. So he's just like, man, fuck it. Like I'm hanging out here with this girl and she's just not going to come to her senses and I'm going to get killed along the way. I don't know. I really object with the way Leia is used in this film because – the biggest actions she does are things like kissing Luke Skywalker and then kissing Han. Like, kissing is her main thing here. And the reason I have a problem with that is because Leia isn't just in this movie as the girl or the princess. She starts this movie as the leader of the Rebel Alliance. And you never see her do anything that's like leadership, even when she's escaping the planet on their space freighter. You know, she defers everything to Han. She makes no decisions. Nobody even treats her with the respect of a leader. She's really only there as a girl. Well, I mean, this is a tactical situation. She's not a general. 
so I think that's the thing. The, the evacuation of Hoth is a tactical a decision. She's not a general. She's not in the right position to be making those decisions. I mean, the, but the, she the, has a higher rank than both than both Luke and Han. Right, but the president of the United States listens to what the general says about how to deal with a battle. That, that's just how it works. But nobody in this film listens to her about anything. I well, here's the thing that's really interesting about the movie is that none of these characters are technically that proactive in this movie, which is the thing that kind of irked me a little bit watching it. It's just characters constantly reacting to other things. The only character who is proactive is Luke Skywalker, and his proactivity is a disastrous mistake. Um, so I'm not a hundred, you know, I'm half and half with you on that part that she doesn't really do anything. But nobody really, none of those characters really do. They just run around and they're just reacting to the Empire, kind of crushing them a little. I suppose, but I still take a lot of issue with it. You know, and in this movie, Empire also does a thing that to me is a real red flag when I see it in films, and that's reaction shots from animals or robots. And like what I really enjoy about the first Star Wars is that all the robot characters are robots, you know, and they make robot decisions. One of my favorite details is that, you know, when C-3PO and R2-D2 are captured by the Jawas and then C-3PO gets bought by Luke Skywalker – C-3PO is totally cool letting R2-D2 get sold to somebody else. That's because, because he's, he's a, a robot. dick. That's because he's a no, dick. it's also because R2 he's is not happy about it. R2's like, all like, boo, and he kind of walks forward a little bit. R2's totally bummed out about it. C-3PO's a dick. That's, that's the thing. Maybe this is the thing. C-3PO is my favorite character. And what I really like about Star Wars rewatching it again is how the first third is half a silent movie starring C-3PO, who I just really enjoy. C-3PO is terrible and uh, there's a lot of reasons why he's terrible. I mean one of which is because he treats his best friend really poorly all the time. But why and is he his best friend? They're just two robots. I, I, <laughs> like, this is like a question I can't – like. This Are is, my blender and my, and my toaster friends? They have AI. They have thoughts and feelings. R2-D2 has loyalty to the rebellion. He will not show the message to Luke Skywalker because he's, he's loyal to his, his previous master despite 3PO telling he's loyal. Because 3PO tells him we're programmed uh, to serve. You must show your new master and R2 will not do it. And then in fact R2 takes off to go find uh, Ben Kenobi. Because he's following his programming. I mean what I can't say about Empire is like this whole scene in the swamps where every time Luke Skywalker screws up – it cuts to like a reaction shot from R2-D2 blinking. It does it like six times. And he's just like blinking, blinking, blinking. It's R- like in every bad 80s movie where they cut to a dog frowning. R2-D2 is not a dog. R2-D2 is much smarter than a dog. But he's treated like How a dog. How do you feel about uh, cutaways to Chewbacca reacting? Like I don't when... like them either. So you just have a thing that you only see humans as characters. This is this is a real problem for the Star Wars movies because the robots and the aliens are all characters too. No, it's not that. It's that they're just treated like props for the most part here. I they, I think they're treated like pets. I don't think that they are. I think that Luke considers R2 like a friend. He requests to have R2 put in his X-Wing uh, in the Assault on the Death Star. R2 is like his pal. He hangs out with him. Through all of the movies, uh, there – I mean I guess not as much in Jedi. But uh, you know, there – R2 is entrusted with holding Luke's uh, lightsaber in Jedi. Uh, he, is, he is Luke's right-hand man uh, in, in, in many ways. So I think that he, R2 is, a, is a, a complete character. What I love about R2 is that he's a character who doesn't speak but you always know what he's thinking and he always knows more than every other character in the movie. I love that about him. Yeah, he's I'm- totally aware. Well, I think R2-D2 is great because he is, he is a, a full character. He, is, is, he doesn't speak. But we always know what he's thinking and he always knows more than every other single character in the movie. I mean I will grant you this. From the little I know of the prequels having not seen them, I think R2-D2 is more of a character than anybody in that film. 
but I want him to be treated, I guess, with more dignity than he is in Empire. And I know that's kind of a crazy thing, but there is just a real simple somberness to the opening of Star Wars I like. Like, I really love the production design of Star Wars. Watching it again for the um, really closely, I think one of my favorite small details, I don't know how you feel about me with this, is that when you when the light shines on C-3PO's head, you see all these smudges and fingerprints and that this world really looks lived in. I mean, that's what Star Wars really did. That is the If we're going to talk about cinematically what Star Wars did, Star Wars is the movie that created the idea that the future is lived in. Um, nobody had really done that before. It had been a little bit, but always the future had been uh, gleaming. It had always been, uh, you know, very next next level. Star Wars, it's all dirty. It's all used up. It's rusted. It's banged up. Yeah, you uh, have junk shops. Junk shops, which stuff has never had never happened before. Two thousand one introduced the idea of a future where there was branding, and Star Wars introduced the idea of a future, even though it's not set in the future. The idea of a future that is uh, that has been lived in. People have been there for a while. Uh, everything is not brand new. So I think that is uh, definitely. A big part of what Star Wars did uh, cinematically. Uh, uh, another big part of what Star Wars did cinematically, you know, we talked about before was uh, merch. So let's uh, take a quick break right now to pay a couple of bills. And then we'll be back right, right after this to talk more about why you're wrong about the droids. All right. So I want to jump right back. We, you know, we, we both agreed the idea that uh, Star Wars cinematically created a whole new visual language for science fiction. But I really want to talk about your thoughts on robots because Star Wars is part of a larger uh, tradition of robots being real characters, uh, whether it be the robot from Forbidden Planet or whether it be the robot in, in Metropolis uh, whose design in, inspired C-3PO. I guess loving C-3PO so much, I get kind of defensive of the way he's treated in this film by the humans. It, like when he gets torn apart in the Empire, Stri- in Empire Strikes Back, the only one who really seems to care about it that much is Chewie. Yeah, well, that's because uh, Ch- uh, C-3PO is a jerk. C-3PO is not a jerk. He's a tol- He's a whiny baby jerk. Uh, th- is this why you like him so much? He is. All is he, he reminds does, me of you. He just complains all the time. That's all that he, oh, he does. does. Remind me of you. Oh my god. Can you do a British accent? Yeah. He all he does is complain. The thing is that it's sweet because he loves R two D two, but he doesn't want to really admit it. I think it's sweeter that if he doesn't love R two D two, I think it's sweeter if he's just a good robot. Oh my God! You have the weirdest <laughs> perspective on everything. Uh, I want to just do a whole episode about robots now. I want to hear what the listeners have to say about your bizarre thoughts on fucking robots. I'm just not that much into anthropomorphization. Man, we definitely have to do a Disney movie then because uh, I can't even imagine how you're going to deal with that. Oh, uh, it's singing crabs. Yeah. How are your singing crabs? My singing crabs are doing all right. They're uh, they're, they're they're resting today. I just got a package from Harry's Razor, so I'm going to shave. My crabs right right out. Oh, and by the way, since we're talking about the use of of, of Chewie, I really hate the way that at the end of Empire Strikes Back, Han tells Chewie to take care of Leia. That just bothers me. She's Why? the leader of the rebellion. Why? Like it's just so patronizing. I, I don't think it is. I think it's somebody he cares about, and he knows that he's going to probably die now, and he's just worried that she's going to. She needs somebody to be there for her because it's a dangerous universe, as clearly indicated by the fact that the movie ends with her, as far as Han's considered knows, captured by Darth Vader. That's the last thing that Han knows that she's in the hands of Darth Vader. Like this is pretty bad. So of course he wants to be taken care. This is not a question of like you know. I mean, if you had a, a seven and a half foot tall giant ape man. Who's super strong, you know, you go like, you know, hey, can you make sure that she doesn't die because you're captured by the Imperials? Uh, I am being frozen alive, possibly to death. Uh, Can you just help make sure that she's all right? I mean, he is he's the bodyguard. I mean, I'll grant you this. 
I have a lot of quibbles with pretty much like 75% of the plotting of Empire Strikes Back, but I really do think it nails the landing. I think the emotional beats at the very end of this film are stronger than almost anything else in the entire Star Wars series. You're talking about like Han's face when he gets frozen in right. the carbonite, talking about Luke Skywalker making the decision to jump and possibly die rather than join the Force. These are huge, huge, major beats. I just feel like what it takes to get there could have been more interesting. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Luke jumping because, uh, you know, in the original version, Luke uh, is told that Vader is his father. He gets upset and then he jumps into this air shaft. In the special edition version, uh, Lucas has him screaming no the whole way down. Uh, making it less of a suicide and more of like he couldn't hold on, which <laughs> ruins the whole moment. Yeah. The whole beautiful beauty of the moment is that Luke would rather die than join his father on the dark side. It's an incredible choice. Uh, and it's so weird that Lucas misunderstands his own movies so profoundly that he would do that. See, but I think that the emotional journey for all these characters is terrific the entire way through because, again, I love Luke's journey on Dagobah now. I, I hated it as a kid, um, but now I love the idea that he is just bristling at the Zen uh, uh, master uh, Yoda uh, and, and, and he, all he wants to do is get out there and fight. And Yoda is trying to make him understand that uh, fighting can only come once you're centered and you have everything figured out. Um, I love the idea that, that that Han and Leia are sort of scrambling to keep up because they're uh, constantly being chased and that the one moment that they think that they're safe is the moment that they're at the most danger. I love that bit about it. I love Lando's... Wait, which moment are you talking about? When, when they're, they're in Cloud to... City. Okay. because They're going to go to dinner and then all of a sudden there's Darth Vader sitting at the end of the table. Yeah, but they really don't run that much. They like run, they get into an asteroid, they hang out for a long time and then they go to Cloud City. I think that's enough. They do eno almost nothing. In that's this enough film. running. They they have an entire fleet of star destroyers chasing them through an asteroid belt. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, but they kind of just basically do nothing. It's just like one chase and then a huge. What I find weird about this is, in my memory, Empire Strikes Back was the better looking film. I think because we have things like the at at battle at the beginning, right. you know, some huge set pieces very early on. But I was struck watching it this time. How in the middle, there's almost no real set pieces at all. Like you have the Millennium Falcon and then you have Yoda's swamps and that my memory of it was sort of wrong. I think actually Star Wars is the better looking film. I don't think there's anything in Empire as beautiful as just that shot of Luke kind of staring off and seeing the two suns. I mean, that's why planet. it's the iconic image of the entire Star Wars saga. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because the structure of Empire – is so weird because it is specifically constructed as a middle piece. So as a result, it opens strong, has the lull, closes strong uh, to lead into the next movie. Star Wars is constructed in a much more traditional way, which is like the opening, it's a little bit smaller, and then it goes into this, uh, you know, big middle part where it's the uh, the basically the heist, the rescue of Princess Leia, and then it goes into the big, big, big part, which is the assault on the Death Star. So it's a it's a constant growing, and it's everything's very different. Uh, Empire uh, is is very much it starts up here, it comes down in the middle, and then it, it then it emotionally comes back. It doesn't have a big action climax, although the obviously the fight between Luke and and, and Vader is a climax, especially. As kids growing up who were watching these movies as they came out, to finally see Luke and Vader face off was incredible. Uh, but it's not as big an action climax as blowing up a Death Star. But that's part of the whole point of Empire is that it is the the darker, softer middle – not softer, but the darker, smaller middle chapter. It's the part where it's about what's happening inside these characters as opposed to what's happening outside these characters, which is what's happening in Star Wars. Star Wars is about what's happening outside of them. Empire is about what's happening inside of them. 
See, I would disagree with, with two things you just said there, which is that I actually think Star Wars opens much higher than this because it opens in mid-battle with Leia trying to get this message to the droids before she's captured by Darth Vader, where Empire opens up with kind of an opening that I think is totally inessential to the plot. This whole, like, capture by the Yeti, the whole sleeping inside of the Tauntaun, none of that actually has anything to do with anything that happens in the, in the rest of the film, where the opening of Star Wars is directly tied to everything that comes after it. But again, because this empire is about the interior <coughs> lives of these characters, I think that that's, that's all really important stuff. This is a, about Luke off on his own, and so Luke thematically begins off on his own, but it's about friends rescuing friends. That's what Luke's decision is at the end of the movie, and that's what Han goes out and does, even though Han knows that – even though Cliff Clavin – Cliff Clavin is one of the guys uh, in a Hoth base, by the way, uh, from Cheers. Uh, even though he tells uh, Han that he's going to die, Han's like, well, I'll, I'll see you in hell uh, because he's going to go out and rescue his friend. So thematically, it's very Vital. This is vital that we see Han doing this for Luke, even though we had seen it in the last movie, that we open up again with this exact same thing, that Han is going to risk his life. We're going to proving that the Han at the end of Star Wars is still the same Han, and then that's going to be mirrored at the end when Luke risks everything to go save his friends, which on paper, when you think about it, you go, oh, that's great. That's what he should be doing. But the beauty of Empire is that it's actually the wrong thing, and the movie is able to make that case. I like what you say at the very end about how that choice is the wrong thing, but I just still really don't see that in Han. Yeah, like I think that yeah, it tries to make that point again. Obviously, that's the whole point. Well, of that no, whole it's not, it's not, it's, scene, it isn't the but, wrong choice for Han. It's the wrong choice for Luke. Right. The movie is being nuanced in 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 in, in when it's time to save your but friends. But that opening is just way too long for that tiny point that it's trying to make. I think you could have made that point a lot faster. And then I think Han undercuts it by being like, "Anyways, peace out, Rebel Planet. Peace out, Leia. I'm taking off." I mean, that's an interesting argument that I'll give you. I want to talk about Star Wars, though, a little bit, since this is the one that we both agree on. Yeah, because now I'm worried I'm pulling you to the dark side I, and getting you to agree with Empire. I'm agreeing with Empire. But the thing is, I like Empire a lot still. I still think that the are only – my take on the Star Wars saga is that there are – there is uh, one masterpiece – one great film, one good film, and then three pieces of shit. Um, so I think Star Wars is a masterpiece. I think that Empire is a, a, a great film. And I think Returns Out is a good film. Uh, and, you know, but I think that the arc of the Star Wars trilogy is sort of down. It's like here and then, eh, and then still pretty good. And then, oh, that was not so great. And then it just keeps getting worse. Um, but let's talk about Star Wars itself. What is really amazing is I think that George Lucas made two great classic masterpieces and they're uh, sort of mirrors of each other. Uh, American Graffiti is one of the greatest films of the 20th century. Uh, it's a, a astonishing. I rewatched it recently on the big screen. It's an incredible experience. Uh, and you can see where American Graffiti segues into Star Wars because Luke Skywalker could have been just hanging out with Terry the Toad and all those guys, uh, you know, in, in, in Modesto. Uh, it's the same thing. He lives in this world where he's living in a small town. Uh, he's kind of super into like his car. Uh, you know, he wants to get out. Uh, he doesn't know how to do it. It's that same teen longing that put Lucas on the map with American Graffiti. But here it's writ into a larger mythic sweep uh, that is as informed by Kurosawa as it is by Lucas's own time cruising the boulevards uh, in Northern California. Yeah. And I think that's what makes Star Wars really work is because as much as we can make fun of Luke Skywalker – 
as much as uh, the classic line delivery of, I was going to pass touch station to pick up some power converters. Uh, as much as that horrible as that is. Uh, Wait, I'm so sorry. I didn't have my headphones on. Could yeah, you do that again? That, that one time was enough. And one, one Tashi station was enough. Uh, as, as horrible as that all is, I think that it's also understandable. And that's the, the other great thing. The Star Wars made a future that uh, is lived in. And it also gave us a character living in that future who is totally understandable. He's not a space captain. He is not an astronaut. He is not uh, a hero. At the beginning, he's a kid. And it's uh, that's the real special nugget at the center of Star Wars. It's true. And I like that aspect of it so much that I don't mind that Mark Hamill is sort of a not the greatest actor. I can't even tell if he gets better by Empire. But I like his rawness here. I mean, they kind of write to his whininess in Empire. That's the yeah. thing. They kind of write to it. Because so. it kind of feels like sort of like he's being an extra in the Partridge family in moments here. <laughs> Like there, there are moments in Star Wars that I get really frustrated with. Like his first couple of scenes with Obi Wan, they feel very lax and energetic. But something about him feels so natural. It kind of works with me. Actually, I have a weird question: Do men think that Mark Hamill is a guy that women find attractive? I think that Mark Hamill, and I can only speak to this on the level of being again an old dude. Um, when Star Wars came out, Mark Hamill was the kind of guy that girls found attractive. Because there's the dichotomy of the two male leads. One's the dangerous rogue and one's the farm boy. So your teeny bop types. Right. The he's, one he's non-threatening. Right. With the he's big cute eyes. with the, the hair and like, you know, uh, he hangs around. He's sweet. He'll take care of you. Han is dangerous. You turn 15 or 16, that's much more of the speed. Uh, but, you know, for the nine-year-old, I think Luke was really uh, the shit. Uh, you know, intriguingly, I guess what happened is that he had a car accident in between Star Wars and Empire. And that's one of the reasons why the Wampa uh, fucks his face up. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about that. Somebody's trying to get super in-depth because they say that he had a part of his ear cartilage put into his nose to restructure it. But then this guy was like, his ears don't look any smaller to me. And I, I was trying to figure out how much ears grow. <laughs> <laughs> Your ears keep on growing. That's why they get real big when you're an old person. Um, oh, don't tell me that. I love my ears. Uh, they're just going to keep getting bigger. Uh, so, I mean, like, you know, it's sort of interesting, uh, Mar- that, that, that bit about Mark Hamill. Uh, yeah. But, I, but you know, his, his naturalism is part of it. He's not a great actor. There's a reason why Mark Hamill never had the Harrison Ford career afterwards. He's fine, and I've enjoyed him in other things, but he's not a great actor. Um, he's a very naturalistic presence who is perfect for this role. It's true. There, I mean, there are still beats in Star Wars I wish were better. Like when he uh, comes home and he sees that his aunt and uncle have, have been killed. I wish that moment hit a little bit harder for him. I think it hits a lot for me. Like in the whole series, that's also one of the big emotional beats for me is just seeing that and the shock of that. Uh, but for him, I, I, it frustrates me that in Star Wars, he never really seems to bring that up. Much love this. Uh, this is I. This is I could not disagree with you more. I love that Luke's uh, aunt and uncle, are, his essential parents, because he's raised by them, are killed. He looks upon their burnt corpses. Gets on with his day. I love that Princess Leia's planet is blown up and she gets on with her day. I am so sick and tired of movies needing to hold your hand and have endless scenes of characters being bummed out. There's somebody – I just Are saw something – about Batman? I'm talking about every but, – but that's – there's movies about trauma. I like where characters have a trauma and then just move past it. I don't want to dwell on this. There's a great thing I read recently on the internet, which is they had a picture of uh, – in, in, in Star Wars when after Luke sees Obi-Wan die. And then they get in the Millennium Falcon and they escape. And Luke is sitting at the chess table sad and Princess Leia puts like a blanket on him and comforts him. And somebody's like, she just watched her whole planet blow up and she is comforting a guy who just saw an old dude he knew for two days now. <laughs> and I'm like, I like that. Like I like yeah. that a lot. I like they just, just keep going, man. Don't – don't. I don't need scenes to have – You know, I understand a planet blew up. It's terrible. I get it. Go. 
What's now? Well, what are you going to do when I die? <laughs> there is a, what a what a what a what a grand day that's going to be. <laughs> you just have to make sure that you've put them the the money into your will. Though once I have one and another. Uh, oh yeah, the fi- the fifteen bucks you think or, you're going to get. Exactly. Uh, no, I like that about it. I think that the movie doesn't because the movie is of a of a pulpy nature that we don't have to dwell on this stuff. I mean, uh, you know. It's there. We can see it. We don't need to spend a whole twenty minutes with like you know Luke's de- descent into sadness. Like he just he 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 goes into action. Perfect. Yeah, I don't mind that. I just wish it even popped up just for like a second, just for like thirty seconds, just for something. I feel like the movie does because it takes a moment. We see the burn corpses. The music plays sad, and then we just go to the next scene. I think we we get it. It's a hundred percent. We get. It. He's sad. Let's go. So. I'm I'm curious, like, what are your proportions on this? Like, if you had to rank right now numerically, how you're feeling about Star Wars versus Empire? I'm super into Star Wars right now, and I was really anti Star Wars for a long time. The whole, all of them, uh, the prequels broke me. Uh, they really broke me. And and and, um, but then I also was just sick of Star Wars. I thought that Star Wars was like a little bit simplistic. But now I, it's the simplicity of Star Wars that I love. It is a straight line story. We have to go here to go here to go here. I love that about it. I love the way that it weaves these characters together to by the end of the movie, um, they've known each other for like probably 36 hours, but they feel like friends. Like when when Luke gets out of the X-Wing and Princess Leia is there to, to, to meet him and they're pals, you feel it. It's, it's, it's a relationship. These are people who care about each other. I love that. When Han shows back up, coming out of the sun to help in that final Death Star trench run, you feel that camaraderie. It's great. Even though these even though these characters technically probably wouldn't feel that way because they've not known each other remotely long enough, uh, it, it, it comes through. It's the simplicity that allows it. Uh, by having the simplicity, by just getting to the basic archetypal uh, characters and emotions, it, it enables us to feel these things in a big way. Um, you know, he's he's painting in, in bold colors. That's fine. Not every single movie needs to be as finely sketched and shaded. Uh, it's exciting. It's fun. Uh, it's paced unbelievably. I mean, this movie came out 40 years ago, and you go back to a lot of films from the 70s, and you're like, oh, I can really feel the difference in pacing. Star Wars feels fast still. Yeah. And the scenes are fast. I really, I really like the pacing of this so much better because for some reason in Empire, the fights seem to drag on forever. Every fight is really good and then it just doesn't quite stop. Well, they get into set piece business in Empire. This is the beginning of what happens I think to movies in general that we turn into this thing where every set piece needs to be a 15-minute long rigmarole. And I think that Star Wars understood that what makes really great – like you know, the um, Escape from the Death Star isn't a set piece. It is a series of set pieces all strung together. So they get into this thing. There's a, there's, there's a firefight in the detention level. Then they get into the into the trash compactor and then the trash compactor is a monster. But then there's also the walls and then we get out and we have to do – and yeah. that's really great. It's this constant breathless. And then as opposed to in a lot of modern uh, set pieces and you know, Lucas does this and even Spielberg, who I love, does this as well. Instead of taking it into a series of events, it's a Rube Goldbergian thing within one event. So you know, And that's a lot of what you said in defense of Temple of Doom and I wasn't really quite buying it there because I thought this was too breakneck. But this, I like it a lot better. The trash compactor scene is one of my favorite scenes in the whole franchise because that's just so visceral. You can feel the grime and you can feel like the tension and you can see it crushing in on you. That was one of the things when I was a kid. We used to play the trash compactor all the time. Uh, either, either, either you know, at home with like pushing things together, or in the pool where somebody would be the Dianoga yeah. and uh, swim underneath and grab you. And you know, my favorite thing about the Death Star sequence, like right before they go and attack it, it's real dumb. But I like how before all the pilots leave to go do this, you see 
all the workmen filling up their planes and like the con- the controllers waving them out. There's something so maybe it's just because they're trying to save money and they couldn't do that many special effects. So they did as much as they could. That seemed no. It's 100 percent on purpose. But I really like all that. It's on purpose because Lucas is making a World War II movie over here. He's, yeah. He's he's based his he used World War II uh, uh, aerial battle movie uh, sequences as sort of his storyboards for the assault on the Death Star. That's 100 percent on purpose. He's doing what what were fighter pilots be doing, and he's he's pushing that into this world of science fiction and fantasy. And I think that's part of what makes it all work so beautifully and so well is the idea that it is, uh, you know, it's all recognizable. He's created a totally different – there's no Earth. This isn't one of those movies like we're like, back on Earth, this is what's happening. It's a different galaxy. It's in the past. It's totally fantasy. But every element is recognizable as a result. And, or anyway, not as a result, but anyway. So I'm pretty firm that out of these two, I want Star Wars in the canon. I think it's the better film. I I think I am 100% on board with the fact that one of these two does have to be in the canon given what they are. And honestly, not being a Star Wars person, I can still really enjoy this film. Although, you know, yeah, if I was given the choice between putting this film on and putting on like seven other films, this would not be my first choice. But I really do think it's well done. I admire the craft. I admire its place in cinematic history. I cannot stand Empire, which really surprises me. I just thought for sure I would be Team Empire on this. Here's the thing. I agree that out of the entire six film Star Wars canon, we really do need one, and this is a pivotal moment for film history. I thought going into this, I would be very much Team Empire because it's considered like the critic's choice. You know, it's, it's got the higher Rotten Tomato score. It's the darker, supposedly more emotionally complicated film. I do think it's the more quotable film. I think it has a lot better one-liners, but I think it's too zingy at the expense of the characters. And so I really am strongly voting that Star Wars makes it into the canon, not just because it's the first film, but because I think it's the better film. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a couple of elements that make me vote the same way that you do, that Star Wars is the, the – out of all the Star Wars films, the first one is the one that goes into the canon. I mean, part of it is I do think it's a better movie. I think it, this has been a thing that I have been awakened to because once upon a time, I really believed that Empire was the better movie because it was more complex. It had more going on. Um, you know, it, 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 the way that it jumped inter- – intercupped, you know, all these, all these different action and stuff like that. I thought it was really wonderful. Or the way it jumps back and forth between inaction. Well, the, well I, oh, if you're going to go that way. Uh, uh, but what I really came to realize – if we're talking about one that goes in, the biggest problem with Empire Strikes Back is that it is a movie that is not intended to be watched on its own. You cannot just walk into Empire and then walk out of Empire and be done. This is a movie that exists specifically as a middle piece. Um, it is not a load-bearing piece. Uh, it cannot maintain the weight of being in the canon. The Star Wars is a complete movie. You can end at the end of Star Wars and that's it. That, that can be it. They blow up Death Star. Darth Vader's out there, sure, but whatever. They're all happy. They're friends. They have medals. It's great. Uh, it's, got, it's, 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 it's got an ending. I mean, even Empire ends essentially with to be continued. I mean, like, that is how it ends. It, it, it opens up in media rest uh, with these characters who already exist and then it closes sort of in media rest with the uh, search for Han Solo. It's not a complete film. It is the precursor to the modern world of franchise filmmaking where movies are no longer individual pieces. They're, they're, they're episodes to be viewed in a, a, in, a, in a larger whole and that's fine. I'm not complaining about it. But if we're talking about what goes into the canon, it has to be the movie that stands on its own uh, that is complete, that is full and just frankly is better. It is, it is, it is, it is funny. It is sweet. It is exciting. It is, it is beyond uh, – uh, imaginative. I, I so I, re- I rewatched Star Wars on the big screen, and I walked out. And you know what? I, I honestly wished they had never made another one. Not because I don't like 
you know, Empire or whatever, but because the feeling of openness of imagination at the end of Star Wars is so big that every time they make a new Star Wars, they kind of close that off a little bit. And so the first Star Wars left me with this feeling of like an, an, uh, an infinite universe. Uh, and every time they revisit it, that universe gets a little bit smaller. Yeah, I wish they had never made another one too, but for slightly different reasons. So that's our take on which Star Wars film makes it into the canon. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit heavy-handed here. You guys can only vote between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. The prequels and Return of the Jedi are off the table. But we do want you to vote. Do you agree with us? Is Star Wars the movie that belongs in the canon? Go to wolfpop.com, go to the forums, and vote in the official voting thread. Or do you want to see Empire Strikes Back, the arguably more complex, the more emotional, the more layered picture in these series, uh, be immortalized in the canon? It's all up to you all that we can do is make our recommendations you guys make the final choice join us again next week as we look at christopher nolan's inception and decide whether this is a dream within a dream within the canon Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Hey, Queeros, it's me, Cami Esposito, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Query. You can sit in on hour long conversations between me, Cameron Esposito, and some of the brightest luminaries in the LGBTQ family. Query explores individual stories of identity, personality, and the shifting cultural matrix around gender, sexuality, and civil rights. Plus, it is fun. We have had some incredible guests. Uh, Emmy winner Lena Waithe? Yes, definitely. Congressman Mark Takano? You bet. L Word creator Eileen Shaken? Yes. President and CEO of Glad Sarah Kate Ellis? We definitely have. We've got celebs. People like Trixie Mattel, Evan Rachel Wood, Tegan and Sarah, the band and the people separately on two different episodes. We also have activists and change makers in our community. I think it's a one of a kind show full of chats you have never heard before. It's identity, it's community, it's query. You can find query every Monday on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.